Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Fox, a family physician and addiction medicine specialist working in a small town in BC. Hi, Dr. Fox. I'm your co-host today, David Ball. I'm a journalist with a decade of reporting experience on substance use, mental health, and public health policies. This is the podcast of the BC Echo on Substance Use, about substance use care and treatment. With gratitude, we acknowledge that the BC Centre on Substance Use is located on the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, and that the reach of this work touches the territories of all 198 First Nations in BC. As we dig into this episode, let's think about this acknowledgement. In Canada and around the world, Colonial histories continue to influence people's access to determinants of good health. And our society continues to advantage white people, including in healthcare. Let's take substance use, for example. Experiencing racial discrimination is a risk factor for substance use. But racialized people may also experience inequitable access to substance use care due to diverse factors like socioeconomic status, discrimination in care settings, or language barriers. This leads us to today's topic, improving care for racialized people who use drugs. We are referring to racialized people as those who are marginalized according to race as a part of their identity. The experiences of racialized people are, of course, really diverse. So we'll continue to address issues of race in future episodes too. And we'll also spend more time in future discussing colonialism. As we often say, ending drug-related harms means addressing racism and colonialism. Hi, Dr. Fox. It's such a pleasure to welcome you back as co-host. Thank you, David. It's good to be back for this season's important final episode. As return listeners already know, this is a podcast for healthcare providers. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Our society is all sorts of stereotypes about people who use drugs. And a lot of them are grounded in racism. One way to look at the issue is through Canadian drug policy. There are a number of examples in which drug policy has perpetuated racism in Canada. For example, it used to be a felony for Indigenous people to buy alcohol or enter a licensed establishment. In addition to criminalizing Indigenous people, these policies contributed significantly to racist notions and stereotypes relating to indigeneity and alcohol use. To take another example, anti-Chinese racism and racist riots in Vancouver also led to the criminalization of opium. That was the first drug to be made universally illegal in Canada. You can learn more about racism in Canadian drug policy through the work of Susan Boyd, available in our show notes. Now, popular media has continued to depict racialized people as criminals, lowlifes, drug dealers, and as non-productive members of society. And that has implications for their experience accessing healthcare. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Sue Ming Kwok about improving substance use care for racialized groups. 
Su Ming is the academic director at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and president of the Alberta College of Social Workers. We'll also hear today from Paul Choisil, who shares his lived experience as a person of color who uses drugs. Welcome, Su Ming, to this podcast. And I am myself very excited to have you on this podcast. When I've read the list of all you've done and all the research, I was just thrilled that I'd be able to interview you. Likewise, it's, it's great to have you, Su Ming. And, and we're talking about something really important today, which is racism and anti-racism in how we deal with substance use. So you're the perfect person uh, to have on. So thank you for making the time. Thank you for having me. For our listeners who may not know, can you tell us a little bit about your work? I'm a social work professor at the U of Calgary, and then I have done a, my research mainly on the side of racialized minority, how they get involved with the criminal justice system, and what their, from their perspective, what have you learned, how to improve the whole criminal justice system. And one of the sub-areas is the substance use among racialized young people, as you had know about, I first published my publication a long, long time ago, actually, when I was in Vancouver at UBC at the time. And I studied about the Chinese Canadian on the substance use in Vancouver. And then I moved to around, actually, to, the, to Ontario and then continued my work on this, the same about racialized young people, how they got involved into the criminal, criminal justice system. So my research area is mainly on the Vancouver, Toronto, and also now in Alberta, Calgary. So that the same focus on about the young individuals, how they involve with the system. Because I mainly study on the East Asian youth and people understand when we talk about youth, we are not only talking about individual actually, because once an individual got involved with the system, whatever is criminal justice or like substance use, it will inevitably like involve the whole family. And sometimes if they don't have a family, and then that means they will involve with other significant others or even their friends, close friends together. So that when we look into this kind of matter, it's not only individual it would be locked into a more larger context. This is my main area of research and work over the past, at least over two decades, actually. I wanted to zoom in on, on one of your areas of research you mentioned, studying Chinese-Canadian people with substance use. The paper was 20 years ago, but a lot of the findings have held up over time. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what you learned about the levels of substance use and seeking help from different communities, from racialized communities? My research finding, there's several things I can highlight, which is also still relevant, actually, to nowadays. There are several things. The first one is about the cultural things, the cultural things. And the one element is about the, in, in, we call it internalization of the problem. That means the, the first thing, if something goes wrong, went wrong, and then the first question they ask is not to externalize things. It's about internalize the whole problem to themselves and to their family. The second area I want to highlight is about the model minority things. And the model minority, because the, it's not only Chinese about the whole East Asia. Uh, for example, like Japanese, Korea, I also have some kind of research, research like participant from that area as well. Yeah, that means the same. Because in that circle, in that area, they have high expectation on education, actually. 
So that's a tremendous pressure on the younger generation. They have to be excel. That means the system, support system, like the school system or other system, it is so hard for them to pick up any kind of early symptom from them because they assume that they are nice, they never create trouble. And then, and then and at the same time, that, that means the children or the young people, they don't know how to reach out to get help. And then more resources may not be go to them as well. So that we see many cases when something happens, it's, it's going to be big actually. And then all of a sudden it's too late to intervene. You talked about internalization and the model of minorities. I wondered, does that lead in some communities to people dealing with addictions and substance use issues internally rather than going for outside help? Yes, this is the first step, actually, because when this happens, like substance use or chemical dependency happen, and, and this is not for them or for the community, it's not a good thing to share, actually, so that they will try to mobilize their internal resources first and try to like ask their ask whatever they can from their internal circle to get help and also help the family together. As I said before, when something happens, it's not individual, it involves the whole family. And this is the first stage. It's the first stage about the whole family mobilize their resources together at this stage. So from a clinical point of view, as a family physician or an addiction specialist working with an individual from this community. It may be important to recognize that internalization may be happening and useful to the patient to help them realize that what is happening to them, the substance misuse or addiction, is not necessarily representative of a character flaw or personal flaw, but may also be caused by things happening around them forces outside of them that would have led to almost, I don't want to say inevitably, but made it higher chance that they would start to use or misuse substances. Another important thing from what you're telling me is to recognize that people may have this model minority mindset. And so patients may be quiet or not telling me anything's wrong or If I ask them if anything's wrong, they may be very reluctant to say anything because either that's what they've been taught is to be very polite, don't cause trouble, or they're trying to uphold an image of, I don't want anyone to think that my culture is inferior or that we're bad, so I need to be make sure that no one thinks that. And also understand that individuals from this community may be doing an assessment of me in our initial yeah, encounters with them to see if I'm someone that can be trusted with this information, someone that can actually offer help. And in, in the current addiction understanding, I was, am I a safe individual? If they tell me something, will the potential harm that I can cause them outweigh any potential benefit I might be able to provide? Do you think that there's an aspect or something that needs to be considered by clinicians that the person that you're talking to will likely have experienced some form of racial discrimination or trouble accessing health care or mental health care in the past? Yes, because I, I, I will suggest even from my research and that even we are from the same ethnic background, cultural background, I cannot assume about the experience of discrimination. 
because discrimination is a personal experience. Even though we, we call that systemic things, however, when it comes down to individual level, each individual, they have their own incident of experience about discrimination as well. I will suggest like all the, all the practitioner in the field that you have to unpack the things first because otherwise it become a slogan for all, okay? And it's to generalize everyone to that you have a discrimination against you. And then even though we say yes, however, there are different degree and there are different incident as well. And then we can also assume about the discrimination it should be from the mainstream to this race because it's so complicated nowadays actually so that we have to understand more about we can tell them more about especially in terms of of internalization of problem and then we can understand more why did you have that kind of conclusion tell me more about that so that during the conversation and dialogue understand more about the incident of discrimination and then you can unpack with them about maybe this is not only you to take up all the responsibility, it should be something else that outside your control as well. It is so interesting in a sense because I went to some conference for the Chinese Canadian conference. Many younger generations, they encountered this problem now because all of a sudden they were in the mainstream for a long time. When something happened, like the chemical use, and they all of a sudden like, go back to your own community. They just say that there's a kind of sense of belongings to belong to their own community. However, at the same time, it's so complicated because if you're on substance use, when you go back to your community, you're not bringing something they say, a good thing back to your community. You're bringing the guilt and shame back to the community, actually. However, you still need that kind of sense of belonging to, to sense of protection from your community. So that there's a certain kind, that kind of mixed feeling that will create certain kind of challenge for as a, as a clinical practitioner to come in and talk to them as well. You have to be very careful to unpack all kinds of burden and mixed feeling among themselves before they actually can talk to you about how to move forward. Your research also pointed out that this sense of alienation can be made worse in treatment in sometimes inadvertent ways. So, for example, one of the participants said that when he went into treatment, you know, that he didn't speak the language. He was kind of off on his own and staff were not reaching out to him. They were kind of ignoring him. Even when it came time to eat, he said one of them said, I just wanted something to comfort me, which for him would have been like a bowl of rice. But that's not on the menu of this treatment center. So in essence, it was almost like they were saying to him, it doesn't matter that you're Chinese. It's too, sorry that you're from a different culture. Too bad that you're different from us, but we're still not going to help you. You have to eat what we eat or else it's too bad you're different. You know, So there were inadvertent ways that the patients felt alienated in the treatment. And I wonder if you can elaborate on any other inadvertent ways that a clinician might make someone feel alienated in a treatment setting. Yeah, that's a good point because uh, when you are in a treatment center, you are so vulnerable, actually. And then you're accessory about, it's not only emotionally, it's physically as well. So that most of them will launch for some kind of like food to comfort them. The food that remind them about their childhood, actually, most of them, they are comfortable with. I will suggest actually in my research as well, about if you really want to like, like help them or care about them, because when you go to this kind of treatment center, you're looking for care, actually. Looking for care 
yeah, looking for care, someone care me. I'm no longer like a, a outcast or whatever. At least I come here, someone talk to me and then care, willing to understand me at all. Yeah, that was one of the points you made really strongly in the research was there is a difference between help and care. And the participants noticed that they were receiving help, but they weren't receiving care. Yeah, so please, yeah, keep elaborating on what the difference is between help and care. Help is like you have just follow the manual. So there's step number one, number two, number three, and then, oh, I fit you on whatever time in the morning schedule. And then I come here to check upon you about, did you take the medication at all or not? So this is what we call help. We follow all the standard protocol. And we say care, that means it is beyond the minimum standard. Because it's the same thing about accreditation. Like I follow all the process. That doesn't mean people like it. You can move beyond that, actually. For example, we say, when come first here, we can ask people questions according to the standard question in the admission, of course. But when I see that you are from different culture, for example, from other than from me, may I ask something more, actually, about, or even I can explain to them our meal plan here, it is so-and-so here. Are you okay with that? Something like that. And then, of course, as a staff member or as a junior staff member in an organization, I do not have a choice to change the meal plan, actually, at all. But at least I care about the individual. And sometimes perhaps there are ways to, to offer something, even if the institution can't, or to just show some understanding. A lot seems to come down to asking questions and not making assumptions about someone's background. You know, comfort food for them might be craft dinner, for all we know. But if you don't ask and you don't acknowledge there's a difference, then you'll never know. And the person is left feeling again alienated. I had a million other questions, but <laughs> I think you've answered and really addressed some of the big take-home messages from this research paper that you wrote. And I can tell you it's going to affect the way that I interact with everybody. That concept of, am I providing help or am I providing care really struck a chord with me. I was just really honored to be able to talk with you today. So thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Suming Kwok for that interview. Suming Kwok is the academic director at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and president of the Alberta College of Social Workers. Finally today, we'll be hearing from Paul. Paul is a harm reduction advocate. Paul, I'm a person with lived and living expertise. I've just been doing harm reduction, involved in harm reduction, I guess, well, for a long time, but officially, say about 11 years ago, started doing outreach and meeting people on the street and going in a non-judgmental way to help out people, talking to people. Basically, a lot of it has to do with breaking down some of the barriers that we have in society. I've been doing substances since young age, I guess, uh, teenagers, where a lot of people start using substances. So also a strong proponent for helping youth through substance use because you do use substances, no matter how many penalties or laws are put there for substances, people will kind of have this tendency to try to 
you know, put youth in recovery and that, that sort of thing. Well, systemic uh, racism is something as a person of color has experienced a lot through peer groups and authority and such, right? So I'm like 58 now. So I guess my substance use started in the 70s. We kind of had to hide to smoke, uh, to smoke weed, which was a big thing back then for teenagers. Then of course, substance use are, are, is pretty expensive. So I started just dealing small amounts just to kind of like keep above water, make a little money to spend so I can smoke the weed that I wanted to weed to smoke, that kind of thing. Of course, then my paranoia of being arrested or being stopped or being seen by authorities turned me into, I guess, a ninja or a Jedi, just to always be like safe and aware of everything around. That's not always a good thing. It's a survival mode, which a lot of people use substances specifically in this kind of environment where substance use is frowned upon, it's criminalized. And of course, you know, the war on drugs has never really been about the drugs. It's always been about the war on people. I thought my substance use basically was a creative thing. And I like to talk about how positive substance use is because the people that are criminalized are the people that have severe issues with it. Just the same way where alcohol can have a bunch of friends that drink there's no issues up until some people develop alcoholic tendencies so it's the same way with substance use so if we're looking at a lot of times you have the naysayers will be saying oh you know taking government handouts if we look at the turn of the century bear aspirin was prescribing heroin cannabis and cocaine for cold medication, you know? And that's what the old Western, you had the snake oil salesman was selling all kinds of those things. Even Sears had a syringe you can buy from the Sears catalog, right? Then the turn of the century came and then all these laws prohibiting a substance use, which was uh, totally based in, in racism. And then pharmaceuticals came in and now you have all these products that are analogs of the real thing, but they're used as, you know, medically, right? So it's kind of, okay, 100 years now, it's probably time that we change the laws. There are too many people in jail just for either pain management or emotional management. Same reason people have alcohol, right? So this absolutely has to change. And I think actually too, the whole system has to be kind of dismantled because it's built on supremacy. It's all white supremacy. A lot of the harm reduction work has come out through peer networks. So the, the original start of harm reduction started during AIDS crisis, where people were, all they were doing was giving out needles, condoms, and they would get charged for it as paraphernalia. We've gone that far, and a lot of the, the methods, because um, talking about safer sex, safer injection, that comes from the AIDS epidemic. So we've kind of continued that on also to safer sex, protecting girls that engage in sex work. We have like supplies. We also have a bad date sheet. This is just, you know, things to basically 
reduce harm. Right? So I find it funny when someone comes against it and says, well, it's a band-aid solution. So I said, okay, what's、well, your suggestion to continue harm? Because we're trying to reduce harm. And basically, if you're against it, you're perpetuating. So we're not doing harm perpetuation. It's harm reduction. So and it covers so many things, right? It covers housing, really important for housing, homelessness. We cover all all those subjects because we're basically tending to the most vulnerable people of the community. So when I find someone is like that, I kind of try to have a conversation with them to see if they can understand what I'm talking about. Very often, they don't right? So a, a lot of the policies are there. So. Vancouver Coastal House is encouraging harm reduction, but that doesn't mean everybody agrees with it.、So、a lot of people take the moral high ground、uh, to kind of say, "Okay, well, the best thing to do is to put everybody in recovery and to make sure that you know no one uses substances." Right? That's not a solution. No, you can't. I, I, I gave this reference before. You, you can't sell a size ten shoe. And store for everybody, right? You know, everybody is different, so you have to have a different recipe for different people. That's basically what harm reduction is all about. I also see a lot of people in the neighborhood, so I talk to people. You know, I know the people at the corner store, so that kind of thing. That's what I do naturally already to change mindsets about them. The only way I really find is to give people more information because people have kind of a narrow. A view of what's going on, right? And、uh, the reference I use a lot is there are already a bunch of overdose prevention sites. They're called bars, so they have safe supply. You can drink, and then the bartender says, "Okay, well, this person's way too drunk. You know, we're gonna have to cut you out. Take your keys. We'll find a way to get you home." You know, that's what an overdose prevention site is. So you know, people. Because of all the amount of stigma, people have tendency to want to hide, and with fentanyl, it's just basically rushing blood for people. So,、um, the best bet is to have someone with other people to come and, you know, use to see if he's okay, and then can go about his business. We just give them more information. A lot of harm reduction information will go、uh, across the peer network, right? So, it, before the、um, health authority picked up on it. It's always been、uh, drug user groups, unofficial, you know, people that hang out and know each other, pass around information. But there's a lot of information online also. So there's a lot of stuff that I put up there with Peep. There's a lot of information, Katie. But you know, usually what happens a lot of times, people won't trust people from old friends, especially if it's like. People that you use substances with, or people who are aware of substance use, and don't act like they're a criminal or hide their person, show up like that. Not all substance use is problematic. There's something called substance use health. For some people, substance use is the first thing you do in the morning to be able to leave the house. Sometimes, also, what they do when they come home because either the body's hurting or whichever, right? So. Don't always judge a book by its cover. <laughs> For me, it's always the interaction with people. That's what, to me, makes a big difference, right?、Um, 
not really doing it for myself. I'm doing it for others. It's just the right thing to do. I really learned a lot from today's conversations. It's such an important one for us all to have, especially in healthcare community. And as we do in each episode, I want to talk about how health providers could apply what we've heard. Dr. Fox, what are some of the clinical pearls that jump out for you from what we heard? It's important when caring for people who use drugs to recognize first the history and current context that shapes the lives, choices available, and opportunities of our patients. This includes the relationship between racism and drug prohibition and the ongoing impact of drug prohibitionist policies that have and continue to enact harm on racialized and indigenous communities disproportionately. We have all been socialized in a society that is racist. As a result, we carry unconscious bias that can impact the way care is delivered. Critically reflecting on the biases that we carry and the policies and services we offer can be an important way to improve the way we offer care for racialized people who use drugs. Racism is systemic and personal and is not something our patients can turn off or not experience. Without changing our systems, we may still work in contexts that perpetuate racism and racist policies even in progressive settings. People in leadership positions need to be mindful of reviewing and changing policies and practices that are rooted within racist systems. Seeking out opportunities to learn about anti-racism and sharing them with colleagues can help create a clinic space that is more accessible and inviting for racialized patients. Taking a truly anti-racist approach involves a process of continual learning. Remember that many racialized people who use drugs will have already experienced stigma and discrimination in healthcare settings. In addition to other aspects of cultural competence, Indigenous harm reduction and trauma-informed practice can help in developing cultural safety in the clinic. A big thank you to all of our guests today, Paul Schwazil and Suming Kwak. Dr. Fox, it was such a pleasure again to co-host this episode with you. Likewise, David. And to our listeners, the study we discussed with Suming and other relevant resources can be found in our show notes. This episode concludes Season 2 of Addiction Practice Pod, but Season 3 is on the horizon and we'll be back soon. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. You can also help plan our future content by filling out the short survey linked in our show notes. To learn more about the BC Echo on substance use, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. This program was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada and Doctors of BC. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use, with the support of Cited Media. I'm Dr. Robert Fox. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next season of the Addiction Practice Pod, coming soon.